Good morning, Golden Corner Church. <laughs> I can't tell you how glad I am to see you today. Doesn't the church look good? Huh? And I want to say thanks to all those that worked so hard to make it look this way. Are y'all ready to study the Bible together? Okay, that's 13. What are the rest of you going to do while we study the Bible together? Y'all ready to study the Bible together? Do you know the Bible tells us that in many ways our God is incomprehensible? It means just in some ways, the ways of God you just can't understand. Try as you may. For example, why would God let a phone ring right in the middle of a church service? <clears throat> When I'm trying to, it's right in my introduction here, Lord, so uh, all right, listen, five ways. The Bible says that there's no way we could possibly understand the full extent of what God knows. His knowledge is too vast, can't do it. The Bible says there's no way that we could fully comprehend the ways of God, why he does what he does. There's no way we could fully comprehend the degree to which God loves us. The Bible teaches that. No way you and I could possibly fathom or understand how powerful God is, what he's capable of. And no way that we could understand the depths of his peace and the impact it can have on our lives. Yet this incomprehensible God wants us to know him. So you know what he does? He tries to reveal himself to us. One of the ways he does it is through the Bible. And so we're in the fifth part of a series of sermons called God Is, and we've just been taking the Bible and studying it a little bit, Sunday by Sunday, and we're looking for six words we could use to describe God. Words that we could finish up that little statement, God is, and the first four words were, God is listening, second, God is able, third, God is working, fourth, God is faithful. So today, we're going to be going into the Bible and see if we can discover our fifth word. And where we're going to be looking, we're going to be looking in the New Testament book of Luke chapter 7, and a story that begins in verse number 18. In just a few minutes, we're going to start reading this story. But before we do, let me set the stage, okay? This morning, we're going to be talking about a guy named John. John was born to godly parents. His father's name was Zechariah, and he was a priest, and his mother's name was Elizabeth. John really was the product of a miracle. He was conceived to parents who were both beyond the age of childbearing. And Elizabeth was barren. It was physically impossible for her to even have kids. John was a man of destiny. Before he was conceived, an angel appears to Zechariah and explains to him, the son you're about to have, he's actually the prophet that was predicted or prophesied about hundreds and hundreds of years ago. The prophet who will be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's coming into this world to prepare the way for the Messiah's entry. This John was such an important individual that the Bible predicted his birth and told about his life's mission. John 
must have followed his parents' example. The Bible says that he was holy. You know what the Bible says about him? It said he was under the control of the Spirit of God from the day he was born. He was holy, lived a pure life. He was absolutely, totally devoted to God. Now, as an adult, the Bible says he spent most of his time out in the woods. I kind of like this guy already, don't you? He was somewhat antisocial, and that's probably an understatement. Really and truly, John was very antisocial. He loved being alone. He was a little weird. He, he made all his clothes out of camel hides. A little rough around the edges. Let's, just, let's put it that way. His favorite dish was locust and honey. Huh? Kind of crunchy and sweet, that kind of thing, you know. He never pursued any formal training. He stayed out in the woods. And somewhere around his 30th birthday, God spoke to him and said, It's time. It's time for you to do what I put you on the earth to do. And so this guy who loved to be in the woods, loved to be by himself, he did something he rarely did. He went to town. And he began to preach. And he preached his message, and then he went to another town, and he preached the same message, and then he would go to another town, and he would preach the same message, and his message was kind of good news, bad news. His good news was the kingdom of heaven is here. What he was saying is, Guys, God is doing something, and he is opening up a world of opportunities for those of you. You need to be paying attention. You need to get in on this. You know what he was doing? He was preparing the way for Jesus. He is preparing the people for Jesus' entry and onto the scene. But every time he would preach his good news, he always peppered in there, Some warnings, you know, you need to get on this or else. He really wanted his people to turn back to God because they'd turned away from God and he really wanted them to live right. And so he would would preach, you know, turn to him and repent of your evil and and begin to live right. And he said, you know, if you're doing that, I I want you to demonstrate that publicly through baptism. Hence, John became known as John the Baptist. Well, this old mountain man began to preach, and I believe he was blown away at the results in every town. Dozens, if not hundreds of people turned to God. And I believe from town, you started adding them up from town to town to town to town, thousands of people turned to God. And they followed him out into the wilderness to the Jordan River where he baptized them. Quickly, he rose to national prominence. I'm telling you, everybody knew who John the Baptist was. He was so successful that some people even thought he was the Messiah. His national prominence gave him leverage with politicians, and oftentimes he would have a chance to speak with them. And one of those politicians was a guy named Herod. And he was the governor of Galilee. And in a conversation one day with Herod, John said to Herod, the governor, that woman you got, you're not supposed to have her. 
that's your brother Philip's wife. What you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is a sin. And you need to repent and you need to fix that and make that right. Listen, as a communicator, John was a little bit abrasive and maybe confrontational. Well, as I read the scripture, apparently he had this conversation with Herod on multiple occasions. And and Philip's wife, whom Herod had stolen, her name was Herodias. Can you get this? I mean, they weren't very creative on their naming. My name is Herod. This is my wife, Herodias. I mean, you know. She took offense at what John said. She held a grudge against him. Did you know the Bible said that even though John said this, Herod, this is what he said, Herod loved to hear John preach. This, this is what the Bible said. It disturbed him. <laughs> it shook him up. He loved to hear him preach. Uh, Herodias, on the other hand, she hated him. She wanted him dead. She went to Herod and said, you need to have him killed. Now, Herod was not willing to do that because John the Baptist was so wildly popular with the people, he, he was anticipating rioting in the streets if he killed John. But he did have John arrested. What was he arrested for? For preaching the truth. For confronting sin. And so he's in prison and days turned into weeks and then weeks turned into months. And the next thing you know, he's been in prison for about a year. And that's where we're going to pick up our story. I want you to read verse 18 and 19 with me. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord to ask him. Now you see in this, right? Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? So John has just been sitting there in this dark, dingy, damp prison cell for a year. A couple of his disciples show up to visit him in prison. And you know what they want to talk about? Jesus. We got to tell you what we saw the other night. Man, this guy had been possessed by evil spirits all of his life. And Jesus stepped in and, and just out of sheer compassion, you know, he, 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 he displays his power in a, in a marvelous way. And he delivers the guy. The guy's restored. You know, his life is given back to him. It was just one of the most amazing things. And, and boy, then this, this one leper came up and, 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 and he had been, you know, struggling with leprosy his whole life. He had lost everything. And all of a sudden, Jesus in compassion just does this incredible miracle. And he, and he cures him and he cleanses him and he gives him his life back. And they're telling him all these fascinating stories about Jesus' compassion and his power and all the lives that have been changed and the good that he was doing. Well, John sat there for a minute, and he stewed on that. He thought about that. He called the two guys back over. He said, I want you to run an errand for me. Go find Jesus and ask him this. Are you for real? Are you really what I thought you were? Are you really who I thought you were? Or do I need to keep looking? 
Now, you, you need to think about this. This was John. This was the prophet. The prophet. The only one who ever got to serve in this capacity as forerunner of Christ. This is the man God was using to start a movement, a spiritual movement in Israel. And Israel had been dead for 400 years. Thousands of people had been converted under his ministry. He stood boldly pointing people to Jesus saying, that's him, you need to follow him. He baptized Jesus and saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove and heard the voice of God say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And what's happening to John? John is now going through a crisis of faith. He's starting to doubt everything he believed. He's really doubting. Jesus is who he claimed to be. How could that be? A year in prison gives a man time to think. I believe he thought about himself. We know what the Bible said. He was holy, pure. He didn't make it a practice to do wrong. He did right. He not only did right, he did good. This was his calling. Man, I tell you what, he was fulfilling his calling. People were being saved. A nation is experiencing some kind of positive spiritual transformation. I believe he's asking himself this question. How is it that I'm living right and I'm doing right? And I landed in prison. How's that right? I believe he thought about all the good he was doing. Man, I was, I, I, people, were, people were turning to God by the hundreds, thousands. And all of a sudden, God just benched me. Put me in this prison cell, locked the door. And, I mean, if he hadn't done that, how much more good could I have done? Well, this can't be right. Surely this is not the way it was meant to go for me. And then I believe he's starting to think about Christ and, and what everybody's saying about him and his potential. And, and you know, his men are saying he's so compassionate. He's so, he's, so, he's so caring about those who are hurting and who are in need. And I believe John's sitting there thinking, really? Really? Oh, he's doing miracles, and he's changing lives, and he's setting people free. And I believe John is sitting there thinking, well, if he cares, he must not care for me. And if he could, why isn't he doing something for me? I believe this is what was happening. John came to this conclusion. This ain't right. He looked at himself and said, hey, I'm living right. I'm doing right. This can't be right, so something's wrong. It's not me. It must be him. Something's wrong in this equation, and I think it's him. I'm not sure he's who he claimed to be. And that last group of stories, that was it. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. It was time to get to the root of this, to the heart of this matter, and find out if Jesus was indeed an imposter. So he called those two guys back over, and he said, you go find him, and you ask him. You tell him I'm asking. So what did they do? Look at verse number 20. John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, 
Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Here's a key phrase you see in this. At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, here's what you do. Go back, and, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers secured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised alive, and the good news is being preached to the poor. These guys show up, and they say, Jesus, John sent us over. He wants to know, are you the real deal? We should be looking for somebody else. Jesus never even answered him. You know what he turned around and started doing? He went on a miracle-working binge. I mean, right in front of him. He's healing people like crazy. He's delivering people from evil spirits. Lepers are being cleansed. I believe he didn't raise somebody that was dead. Then he turned to him and said, just go tell John what you sing and heard. In other words, uh, you share with him the evidence and let him weigh out for himself. Let him reach his own conclusion as to whether or not I'm the real deal. I believe as they turned to walk away, Jesus had one more thing to say, verse number 23. And he said, and tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. I want, to be, I want to confess something to you. This is the hardest sermon I've ever prepared. This is the hardest text I've ever explored. It absolutely consumed me this week. You know why it was so difficult? So many phrases, so many statements that are extremely difficult to understand. And for me, this was one of them. God says, oh yeah, oh yeah, you guys... Uh, when, you get to, when you get to John, you tell him this, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. Now, after hours and hours of research, I'm going to give you my best paraphrase, okay? This is what I think Jesus was saying. Tell John this. I bless those who follow me no matter what. I bless those who follow me no matter what I send their way, good or bad. I I bless those who follow me no matter what I don't do on their behalf. I think it was an encouragement to John because that's the way he had always been. But I think there's a little warning in this. John, be careful. You're in a dangerous place. And so the guys walk off. There's a crowd there. They've heard the disciples who said, John sent us and wants to know this. They've heard, they saw what Jesus did, they heard his response. And so Jesus turns to the crowd, and you know what he begins to talk about? He starts talking about John. Because I believe some of them were starting to suspect there, maybe there's something wrong with John. I mean, he's been in prison a long time. If, if John were the real deal, wouldn't Jesus have bailed him out and turned him back loose? I mean, I believe they got questions. So you know what Jesus said? Let me clarify. John is everything he ever claimed to be and more. He said, as a matter of fact, up to this point, he's the greatest man who ever lived on this earth. Then what happened? Look at verse number 29. 
when they heard this. All the people, even the tax collectors, agreed. This is, your, this is the key statement. You're looking at this, right? This is the key. This is, this is where we look, what we're looking for. All these people agreed that God's way was right. We've heard. We've seen. Here's our conclusion. God's right. For they had been baptized by John, but the Pharisees, an expert in religious law, rejected God's plan for them, for they had refused John's baptism. I've got to tell you again, as I studied this, I looked at those two verses, and this was the question came to me. What has that got to do with anything? Why were those two verses placed in there? I don't understand how they connect with, with the rest of the story. I mean, but if you were reading from your Bible, you noticed that those words were in black print, not red print. They're not a direct quote of Jesus. These words were inserted by the man who was writing this under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. His name was Luke. And God told Luke, write this down. Write down the response of these people. And I believe, I know why I believe these two verses kind of hold the, the lesson that we're to get out of this story. And I believe the lesson is this. People who believe God is right accept his plan for their life. And people who believe God is wrong refuse his plan for Somewhere in this story, we're supposed to find a word that we can use to describe God. And for me, that word is right. God is right. That's the conclusion that people came to. Ronnie, what does that mean? It means that God is just or fair. It means God doesn't make mistakes. He never has. And he never will. Everything God does is right. And everything He never does is right. Everything He refuses to do is right. His ways are right. His timing is right. Say, Ronnie, how do you know this? The Bible declares it. Over and over again, God is described as the righteous God, the righteous Father, the righteous one. You know what the word righteous means? Isaiah the prophet defines it for us in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 7. He said of God, O God, you are the God who does right. But you ask, what about situations like John's? John lived right. He did right. And then he landed in prison. How was that right? John was doing an incredible amount of good and could have done even more good. But instead he languished away in a prison cell. God let him. God let him. How was that right? Jesus had the power to have kept John out of prison. He could have done that. He certainly had the power to get him out of prison. Do you know he never did? Did you know that John died in that prison? How was that right? All this, you know, it seems kind of unfair to me. And I'm assuming it does to you. How was that right? 
Listen to me. John's imprisonment was fulfilling God's overall purpose and fulfilling God's specific purpose for John. That made it right. I'm going to say it again. John's imprisonment was fulfilling God's overall purpose and it was fulfilling God's specific purpose for John and that made it right. Now, what was John supposed to be doing? Prepare the way for the Messiah through his preaching. He had done that. Point out the Messiah so people would follow him. He had done that. What was supposed to happen next? According to John, in John chapter, I believe it's John chapter 3, John the Baptist said this, At some point in my life, i got to decrease so that he can increase. John was supposed to fade from the scene, leaving Jesus alone in the spotlight. That was part of the plan. How's that going to happen? Oh, John's a national celebrity. I mean, if you'd gone down to the Christian bookstore, you would have found the John the Baptist Study Bible. I'll tell you about everybody was using one. You could go to iTunes and shop the podcast and... And there was old John's podcast, Words of Truth. Turn on the television and you'd see John talking with local politicians. How does does a celebrity fade from the view of the public? What about an extended stay in prison? That ought to work. I don't believe John understood it, and I don't believe he liked it. But John's stay in prison was a necessary step in the fulfillment of God's plan. It's how John faded out of sight and left Jesus alone in the spotlight. According to Isaiah 55, God's ways are incomprehensible to man. So try as we might. We're never going to fully understand the ways of God. You can be sure of this, God will not always be understandable. Are, we, are you clear on that? You got that? I, 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 give you, I give you this promise. God will not always be understandable. But God will always be right. So, if that's the truth, here's what I'm suggesting. Let's stop questioning. And start accepting. Just like old John, we're going to experience things in life we don't fully understand nor appreciate. There's coming a point in your life, if it hasn't already come, when you're going to do the right thing and something bad's going to happen to you. Now, where we're going here, the televangelists don't go. They'll tell you, do good. Good is coming. Right? Bad only comes for the bad I'm telling you sometimes you'll do your dead level best and bad follows on the heels of it that's the truth there are going to be times when you pray your heart out and then helplessly watch as things only get worse hey this ain't good news is it huh it's truth
There are going to be times that you hear people giving testimonies of how God answered their prayers and how he stepped in their lives and delivered them and changed things for them. You're going to sit alone and go, why them and not me? You know, when this happens, you'll be tempted to question God. You'll say, God, how could you love me and let this happen to me? How could you be an all-knowing God and know this was coming and not somehow shield me from this? You, you answered their prayers. You, you, you're obviously not even listening to me. Why aren't you listening to me? You helped them. Why not me? Hey, God, if you can do anything, I just, why don't you just do something for me? Have you ever questioned God? Okay, there are two of us. Somebody over here and me. Have you ever been through an ordeal where you began to question God? That is a dangerous practice. I think that's what Jesus is trying to say to John. Son, you're walking into some dangerous territory here. You know why? Questioning God you know, I think it's a lot like waves on the seashore. When a wave comes in and it goes back out, it always takes something with it, and oftentimes it deposits something in the process. Every time we call God into question, that question takes a little of our faith and deposits a little of resentment. And the next question takes a little of our faith and deposits a little more resentment. And somewhere in the process, faith is gone. And all that's left is resentment. Here's the danger. People that don't trust God, don't follow God. And people that don't follow God, never see or experience the fulfillment of God's plan for their life. That's the point Jesus is making to John. Finish strong, son. I know, I know that this is not what you expected. I know that this is not what you wanted. But hang in there and hang tough and finish strong. So don't question God. What do we do? We should accept whatever God sends our way. And acknowledge it as right. Now listen to me. We should say, God, I don't understand this. I don't even like it. But I'm accepting it. Knowing that you've never made a mistake. You're not making a mistake. You're not making your first mistake with me. You always do right. So somehow or another for me, this this is right. And I accept it. That's what we ought to do. That's not easy to do. What does it take to do that and be sincere? We've got to see the big picture. 
So I believe John's problem was he, he lost sight of the big picture. And you know what the big picture was? To fulfill God's will for his life, John had to be phased out and Jesus had to be phased in. That's the big picture. And I don't think it's any different for us. You know, I think sometimes we operate under this misconception that God's plan was to give us success and prosperity as the world defines it. That's God's plan. And I think we're aided along by the help of a lot of preachers on TV. They'll tell you that. God's plan is for you to be a picture of health, have unlimited amounts of money, the best this world can offer. You know, you know, just everything in your life should line up and be absolutely perfect, and it will be if you do right. And they'll tell you that's God's plan. God never, God never planned for you and I to have a cushy, comfortable, carefree life. Hey, that's our plan. That's our goal. That, that's, God never planned for that. You know what God planned? God planned to so radically transform us, to so radically change us, that we're like Christ. That's his plan. He wants us to decrease so that Christ may increase. From the moment we were saved, we're supposed to start fading and just fade a little bit more every day until all that is left is Jesus. Now, unfortunately for us, one of the most effective means of this transformation is pain. Emotional pain, relational pain, even physical pain. When we hurt, here's what I want us to do. Rather than question God, take a fresh look at the big picture. You know what God is doing with your pain? He's using it like a chisel to chip away a little bit of you so that a little more of Jesus shines through in your life. God wants us to be like his son. We've got to see that. But that's not enough. We've got to want that. When we see that, and that's what we want, and we want that with all of our heart, we'll gladly accept whatever God sends our way. Some of you, you came here today and you've been battling this thought. You've been thinking, God has done you wrong. He's done me wrong. Or he is doing me wrong. I'm here to tell you he's not. He can't. God is right. And he only does what is right. So sometimes what we want is comfort. Christ and God is interested in conformity. We want to be comfortable in this life. God says, I want to conform you to the image of my son. He's doing what needs to happen for you to become like Christ. 
So I guess you could sum up. Lynn, I worked all week on this thing. Man, it's just been so consuming to try to prepare this sermon. Lynn went shopping yesterday. She came in late. And she said, how's the sermon? I said, well, it's done, but I think I've got the sermon that nobody wants to hear. She said, what? I said, yeah, my sermon is kind of like this. Sometimes trouble comes. Sometimes trouble stays longer than you ever wanted. Sometimes trouble comes and never goes away. Who wants to hear that? But here's the good news. When trouble comes and won't go away, your God is at work on you and in you, transforming you into the image of His Son, Christ. Thank you. That's the good news, is that there's something going on. God's highest purpose for you is being achieved. How sleazy it would be for me to stand here and tell you this. If things aren't going well, it means you're not doing right. So you need to change and start doing right, and I promise you things will go well. That's a lie. God's not doing you wrong. He's doing right. He's changing you. And I want you to be grateful for it. I'm glad this one's behind me. Let's pray together. God, I come to you just kind of represent this whole group. I want to say to you, for every time we've called you into question, we apologize. We apologize right now and confess you're you're right. And your ways, even though they go beyond our understanding and our comprehension, they're best. And so here's what we're going to do rather than criticizing you and analyzing you and accusing you. We're going to trust you. Because you're a God who always does right. And in our case, you're continuing to do right. Just bring our desires in alignment with yours so that the thing we want most of all is to be the people you want us to be. Whatever that takes, God, whatever that takes. Even if at the moment we don't appreciate it, we're thankful that you're supervising this whole process of growth and change and transformation. So you take whatever tool you want to take and you do the work you want to do as long as the the outcome is that we're pleasing to you and we glorify you to our fellow man. That's all we ask. In the name of Christ, we pray this together.
if anybody needs to talk to somebody, if you need to, you know, just share some feelings or, or, or whatever it is that you have on your heart this morning, uh, I'm going to be out in the foyer in just a few minutes, and Scott will be there too, and we'd love to talk to you.